This world is not a place for glory and happiness and whatnot. But it's a racing, it's, 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 it's a place of race. It's a pl- place of running the race, running the course that God has called all of us to live. When you are saved, God charts a course for you. Right? When, and we, for example, when you're married, when you're married, the course that God ch- charts for you is to love your husband and wife as Christ loved the church. That's the course that God has, that has given you to run. If you're part of a church, the course that God has given all of us, as Paul says, is to evangelize, to, disciple, to make disciples of all nations. We are, all of us are called to run this race. We run the race so that we can get the crown at the end of our lives. When we go before the Lord, how we ran will determine what kind of prize we will get from the Lord. I think the, great, the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous misunderstandings that we have as Christians is we think that once we're saved, our prize in heaven is going to be set. There's nothing that we can do to earn more prize in heaven. That's not true. Yes, certainly salvation is from the Lord, and the only way that our eyes become open is through the grace of Christ, and that is true. And there is no way that we can make righteous, we can become righteous in God's sight unless for the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But the treasure we get when we go before God's throne will be different from all of us. Some of us will barely make it in there, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Others will get the crown of glory. It all depends on how you run. Are you running? Or are you like the world who views this place as a primary place of security, happiness, and pleasure? The greatest obstacle for us to run the greatest obstacle that Satan throws at us to prevent us from running is idolatry. And that's what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What hinders our running? Idolatry. What is idolatry? It is, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but it's idolatry is worshiping anything other than the true God and in a true way. And Paul gives an example of, of, Paul uses the the Old Testament example of the Israelites wandering in the desert to illustrate the dangers of idolatry. Paul says in chapter, verses 1 through 14 last week, Paul says, look at the Old Testament Israelites. They were were special people. They were people under the cloud, he says. What does it mean for them, Israelites, to be under the cloud? He, He means... When the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, God physically led them with a cloud. The the Israelites, were they didn't know where they were going. They were just following the cloud. Every day, God will send a cloud, and when the cloud moved, the Israelites followed it. For 40 years, they had day-to-day direction from the Lord. Paul also says these people passed through the sea. Which means the first generation of Israelites who came, out of the, who came out of Egypt, they saw with their own eyes the Red Sea parting, and they stepped on the ground after, like when, the, when, the, when the Red Sea was parted. They went through the parted sea. 
Paul says they were baptized onto Moses. That means they, they belonged to Moses. Moses was the savior that God sent to deliver them from Egypt. So when, they, when Paul says they were baptized unto Moses, he's saying the, God specifically loved you and saved you and led you out. Every day, the Israelites were provided spiritual nourishment as well as physical nourishment. Remember manna? Right? They were, they were foodless in the wilderness. God sent specific provisions every day so they could eat. There is no one, no group of people in the history of the world that has seen God's direct intervention for a long period of time than these Israelites. I hear sometimes unbelievers say, right, I will believe in God when God shows up and says, I am he. Um, one, of the, one of the intellectuals that I follow is this guy named Douglas Murray. He's a, he's a, he's a UK-based intellectual. He calls himself a Christian atheist. And what he means by this is he agrees with the Christian worldview, but he just cannot believe in Christ. And someone asked him, what would it take for you to believe in Christ? He says, Jesus would need to come, will need to appear before me physically and say, I am he. Unless he sees with his eyes that Jesus is real, he says he's not going to believe. But the first generation Israelites out of Egypt, they saw with their own eyes who God was, right? They, ex- they, were, they had a daily experience of miracles. If there were a group of people that has to be sure of who God was, was with these guys. But Paul says, unfortunately, a lot of these guys died in the desert, even though they started the race out of Egypt. They died in the desert. Why? Idolatry. Just because God appears before you and say, I am me, that is not a guarantee that you will, you will, you will be exempt from idolatry. Just because we had religious experiences yesterday, it's not a guarantee that you will be exempt from idolatry. Idolatry is the one that makes us not run the race. Idolatry is the one that makes us make our lives ineffective and worthless. Idolatry, if we give into it, is the thing that's going to destroy our soul. That is why Paul spends a lot of time talking about idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. So what is the definition of idolatry? Like I said before, the couple of definitions that I found in my studies. Number one, definition of idolatry is you are worshiping anything other than the one true God in a, in, in a true way. So idolatry is not only worshiping anything besides God. Idolatry also involves worshiping God in a way, in a, in a different way than he prescribed. Right? And so we can see this from the history of Israel. Right? Um, the first two commandments, right? God reveals the, first, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the, all, all the commandments, his laws to the Israelites. The first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Right after the first commandment of you shall have no other gods before me, the second commandment is you shall not make yourself an idol. 
First commandment is no other gods before me. Second commandment is don't make idols. Anything, don't make an idol, like in anything, like in the image of anything in heaven and earth. Don't make it. These first two commandments show us God knows our propensity to idolize things other than him. Once God reveals to people this, I am real, the natural propensity of the human heart is to find a God substitute. It's weird. But that's what people do all the time. And you can look at the history of Israel, right? Look, God led them out of, Israel, led them out of Egypt. They saw these miracles. But once Moses went to Mount Sinai, right, to get Mount Sinai, right, Mount Sinai to get the law of God, 40 days he was absent. What did the Israelites do? The people who literally crossed the Red Sea, what did they do when Moses was absent? You know this. They got their goats together and they made a golden calf and they worshipped it. Important thing about their golden calf worship is these people, when they were made the golden calf, they thought that that calf represented who God was. In the Old Testament times, the calf, the cow symbolizes strength. And because Moses was gone, they didn't know who God was, so they just started to make an idol in the image of who they think God was. And that image was a cow. These people thought they were worshiping the real God, but they were really worshiping an idol. That's what idolatry is. Not only do you not worship, you find a substitute, God's substitute, but you worship in a way that God has not, you worship God in a way that has not been prescribed by God. God has told specifically to all of us how we are to worship him. We are to worship him in spirit and in truth. But if we do not worship in accordance to the spirit and in truth, then even our worship Become, can become idolatrous. God says, you worship me in this way, in, through his spirit and his truth. That's how you worship him. If you worship him in any other way that, than as he has prescribed, just like the Israelites, it become an idol, you become, you become, you are, we become worshipers of idols. Second definition of idolatry can be found in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Romans chapter 1, verse 25. It says, they, they, meaning the human race, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship the created things more than the creator. So in Paul's definition of idolatry, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it, idolatry is exchanging the knowledge of the true God for a lie, right? And rather than worshiping the creator, we worship created things. We worship creatures. Idolatry is worshiping the created things, the, cre the creatures, rather than the creator. Reality, there's only two realities, right? There is the creator, God, and there are creatures, his creation. That's how reality is divided. There is the creator, God, the one true God who made everything, and everything that he, and all the other stuff in existence are creatures, the work of his hands. But what men do, what people do, is they ignore the creator and they worship the creature. 
creature, I mean not only just animals and things. It can be ideologies. It can be the American dream. It can be socialism, whatever it is. People have a tendency to worship the creature, created things, than the creator. The definition of worship is this. You give something, you give worth to something that is you give, you give worth to something. That's what worship is, right? You give worth to something. When we know that God is creator, we give to him what he is worth. What, is, what, what do we give to God that is worthy of him? We give him our praise. We give him our thanksgiving. We give him our blessings. We give him our trust. We give him our love. We give him our devotion. When we recognize who God is, the natural, our natural response is worship. And how do you worship God? You give him what, he, what is due his name. And what is due his name? Our praise, our thanksgiving, our devotion, our meaning, our purpose, our love. Idolatry is giving our meaning, our praise, our purpose, our love, our devotion to created things rather than, the, rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. You give to created things, but, you, but you, what we are called to give to God. Human history is messed up because of idolatry. People not recognizing God as the creator. People giving created, created things what is due only, only to God. That's the root cause of idolatry. Ignorance of God. Right? And then and, 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 and extended ideal of what a creature, what, what created things can give us. History of idolatry, you can see it in the Old Testament in the Israelites. Right? How did how did the old, how did the Jews perf- conduct perform idolatry? How did the Israelites, who were saved by God from the Egypt, how did they how did they idolize? How 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 did they commit idolatry? A couple of ways. The first way is, even though God saved them, even though God led them out of slavery, their eyes were always wandering to the gods of the of their neighbors. It's weird. For those of you who know Old Testament history, God put them, God led them out of Egypt and placed them, like, and led them to Canaan, the promised land. Canaan was inhabited by all these different tribes when Israel first got there. And all these different tribes had their own gods, idols. What Israelite did was, ever since God led them out of Egypt and put them in Canaan, their eyes always started to wander to the gods of their neighbors, to the gods of these tribes. It's weird. And the number one god that they wanted to worship, besides the real god, is a god named Baal. Right? Baal is like a... Just, the idol of a Baal is like, like a, a, per, a man's body and like calf's head and a horn. And Israelites' neighbor worshipped Baal because they believed Baal would protect them. Baal would you know, protect them from the elements, Baal will make their harvest, you know, fruitful. 
back in the day, everyone was a farmer, right? So you would need, you know, blessings of the land to make your harvest fruitful. They believe if they worshipped Baal, Baal will protect them and Baal will make their harvest fruitful. What's weird about the Israelites was they experienced firsthand in the desert of how God protected them and provided for them. But when they, when they got, to the, got to Canaan, they ignored the real God. And their eyes were always wandering to, the, to Baal. It's weird. It's like being married to someone who's always checking like, other people out and you know that that person could like, eventually leave you at any moment. It's like married, being married to like, an adulterous person. They were always looking. They were always keeping their options open. It's weird. Ever since God rescued them, he had to contend with their idolatrous hearts. What another way the Israelites committed like, um, idolatry? Sometimes they used God's, like, things that God provided for them and made them into idols. For example, like, when they went to battle, right, in the, like, you, 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 you read Joshua, right, like, any major victory, the Ark of the Covenant, right, was, was that's where the Ten Commandments was, was housed. Before every battle, the Ark of the Covenant, like, you know, went before Israel. And God told him to do that as a symbol, right? The fact that God is with Israel. But eventually what happened was they forgot about the real God. They, did, they forgot the reason why God told them to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of the, of the fact that God is with them, right? They ignore the God part, and they just begin to think. Regardless of how they live, as long as they have the Ark of the Covenant, then they're going to win the battle. So what they, what they eventually started doing was they started living crazy life, like immoral, idolatrous life. And they thought, as long as I live, as long, even though I live an idolatrous life, as long as the Ark of the Covenant, I bring it out, I'm going to win my battle. Israel started to idolize the thing that God gave them. Israelites even began to idolize worship services. They believed as long as they, they honored the Sabbath, as long as they came to church, they, for, our, you know, for our example, as long as they did religious services, it didn't matter how they lived, God will still be their God. They started to idolize the religious service of itself. They started to idolize the Ark of the Covenant. They started idolizing their neighbor's God. They did everything, but, but one thing, their hearts were not aiming towards God. That's how the Old Testament Israelites committed idolatry. How did the and, 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 you know, and the Corinthian Christians, when Paul was writing this, they knew, I mean, they were really familiar with like, pagan idolatry because most of the Corinthian Christians had the background of pagan idolatry. The pagan idolatry, like worshiping of Zeus and Aphrodite or whatever, that pagan practice lasted, like, was, was from thousands of years ago. And these pagan idolatrous practices, the Corinthian Christians were aware of, of, of it. And they were from it. So they knew, right, idolatry was a very common thing in the world. So there was idolatry in the Old Testament. There's idol, problem of idolatry in the New Testament. 
Idolatry, it still goes on today. Right? And there is no such thing as an unbeliever. Right? Because everyone worships something. There is no such thing as an unbeliever. Because everyone worships something. And we worship so many different things. We can worship material things. That's my generation, right? Like the American dream, the yuppie dream, right? Material things, right? House, car, whatever it is. It's, so, it's been so preached so often, it's boring at this point. But it's true. People worship material things. I was watching a Netflix documentary last week. It's called Minimalist. And minimalists are a group of young people. They don't buy stuff, right? They, they just, you know... They just choose not to waste their money on what their parents wasted on, like a house and, and, and stuff. And one of the guys, right, one of the guys says, we don't, I don't live that way, right? Because I think it is very foolish to try to satisfy the yearning of my soul by purchasing stuff. The young man recognizes the ludicrousy of trying to find spiritual fulfillment through purchasing stuff. But that's what people do all the time. People don't know where they're from. People don't know why they're here. People don't know where they're going. Therefore, what do people do? They buy stuff to distract themselves with these questions. You can idolize beauty, right? You can idolize your parents. You can idolize your kids, right? Idolizing parents and kids, very strong in the Korean community, Asian community. You can idolize your job. You can idolize ministry. Right? That's what a lot of pastors do. We idolize ministry. We try to find God's substitutes. But one of the most dominant idolatries in today's world is that of ideology. Rather than worshiping, many, many people, rather than worshiping material things, they worship man-made ideologies. The world is run by a carefully crafted system, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And the way the world make, maintains their carefully crafted system is through promoting a certain, certain narrative of the world. There are academics, intellectuals that formulated a narrative of the world. They say this is how the world works. Their narrative are not supported by data or facts or anything. But people don't care. They think that narrative sounds good. And therefore, they look at the world through the eyes of that narrative. One of the narratives socialism. Socialism is a very common narrative today. It dominates everything that we see, right? Socialism clearly didn't work. It was responsible for hundreds of millions of deaths. It's not supported by any fact that it works. But people in universities, people in Hollywood, who are responsible for what you watch, they think it works. And we, and we embrace that narrative, that man-made narrative as truth. Biblical narrative, the gospel narrative is false. The man-made narrative is true. 
That's idolatry. Worshipping the narrative of the world. Like, I'm doing like marriage counseling. I'm doing so many marriage counseling right now. And we're reading this book called Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And, he's, and one of the main theories of the book is the reason why many marriages fail is because people have a wrong narrative of marriage. People think you get married to be happy. That narrative, that romantic narrative perpetuated by Hollywood and romance novels is causing harm to real marriages because people find out really quickly that like, marriage is not, marriage is very, very hard. And when people discover that they, marriage is really hard and it's against the ideal, the, the narrative that they're raised with, they don't know what to do. Narrative is the idolatry of, the, of our age. And just like the Israelites committed idolatry before the Lord, the people in the modern church can also commit idolatry, and we just don't know it yet. It is possible for us to be called Christians and yet be idolaters. Did you know the Old Testament Jews? They thought it was perfectly possible to worship both both God and Baal. In the, in, the, in, the old, in the Old Testament temple, during the days of the kings, they set up God's temple. They married the things of God and they married things of Baal and they worshipped both. They thought it was perfectly possible to worship Baal and God at the same time. Many Christians believe that too. We think it is possible to worship God, run for God, and run for the American dream. We think it is perfectly possible to hold to the biblical narrative of what life is and also hold on to the, 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 the world's narrative of what the world is. We have no problem like, combining the two. But Paul clearly says today, it's, that's not possible. You either worship God or you worship demon. It's not possible. How does a modern church commit idolatry before God? Like I said, you adopt a worldly narrative. What the world tells you about sexuality, what the world tells you about race, what the world tells you about you know, justice, what the world tells you about money, what the world tells you about sexuality, what the world tells you about sin and all these things. We adapt that rather than what God has to say. Many, there are many dying churches right now. Do you know that? There are many churches who are dying. There's no life to those churches. And many of those churches, they're dying because they started to embrace the world's narrative rather than God's narrative. They started to see the problems of the world, right? And these churches started to say, when they started, they say, we're going to preach the gospel, and yet we're also going to deal with the social issues. But what eventually starts to happen was these secondary social issues, they become the primary thing that these churches live for. And when they start adapting this narrative of the world rather than the narrative of God, they, start, they stop preaching the gospel, and they become lifeless. The history of the church is, made with, is filled with such examples. Churches embracing the narrative of the world rather than the narrative of God. 
You can, you can say that you're a Christian and embrace greed. You can say that you're a Christian and embrace, I don't know, the American dream. We think that's possible, but God said it's not. Now what is Paul's prescription to idolatry? Idolatry is a very common problem. It is so common. That's why the second commandment is what God gave us the second commandment. How do we fight idolatry? Paul says in verse 14, flee, run away. Don't try to combat it. Don't try to destroy it on your own. Paul says, run away, flee. Flee from idolatry. Recognize idolatry is in your heart. Recognize the temptation to idolize is around you. How do you do it? You flee from it. How do you flee from idolatry? There's maybe maybe four ways that Paul talks about in this verse. The first way, you flee from idolatry by thinking. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Sensible here means reasonable. Paul says, look, the way you fight adultery is just use your, use your brain. Reason, just be reasonable about this. Just think about it. Use your brain. The way you flee idolatry is by thinking. Because if you actually think about what you're idolizing, it doesn't make any sense, right? Use your brain, Paul says. Think. Christianity, the way God saves us, he saves us by, the, by, by giving us God's word. We hear it, and he renews our mind. The reason why God wants us to preach the gospel, it is so that that gospel, that information about the gospel, will persuade our minds so that our thinking will change. Christianity is about changing, a thought, changing the way we think. Use your brain, Paul says. Think. Think whether these idols that you worship are really worth it. What is idolatry? We take a created thing and we give it an engrossed view of like value of what it actually is. Even though it's never worth what, what it actually is, we assign value, more value than what that thing actually deserves. For example, other people's opinion. We think it matters so much. To the point where some of us are paralyzed by it, what other people think of us. But what is that? What does other people's view of you? What does that matter? Number one, people are selfish; they genuinely don't care. And number two, they're gonna die anyway. So that's why I told my son. Like my son, well, like you know, he had like I'm glad that he's not here listening to this. Like he says, oh, like I want to be popular. Like, you know what I mean? I don't want to be, be viewed as a loser. And I told my son, look. And it was like, this was when he was a freshman. I said, look, when you graduate, no one's going to remember you and no one's going to care. 
So don't spend your high school career wandering, thinking about what other people think of you. Because after you're graduating from college, after you're 50 years old, no one's going to remember you. No one's going to care. That's with all, everyone. That's with everything. And yet, even though the opinions of men don't mean much, we give it an inflated value. Paul says, think. As I was preparing the sermon, I was listening to a sermon by this pastor named Andy Davis, who's a pastor in, uh, in North Carolina. And he says, The devil tempts us to idolize worthless things. And when he persuades us to worship worthless, th- worthless things, he says he believes the devil's laughing at us. The devil says, hey, worship, you know, that person's opinion of you. And we give into it, and we start to value their, their opinions more than, more than actually worth. Satan gets a good laugh, a good laugh out of it. He says, look at that guy, worshiping that. Look at that person, wasting their God-given life on pursuing that. I'm glad I have a face mask. Satan laughs at what, what we idolize because he knows it's worthless, and yet we, we devote our entire life for worthless things. Paul says, think. Second way you've come at idolatry is proper worship. And that's what verses 16, right? That's what verses... 16 um, and 18 is about. 16, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is, not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a particip- participation in the body of Christ? It's weird. Paul, when he talks about idolatry, idolatry, then he talks about the Lord's Supper. Why does he do that? He does that because he knows the way you flee from idolatry is by properly worshiping God. The Lord's Supper, the communion in the early church, that was how they primarily worshiped God. Right? Through the early church worshiped God by, by, by doing the Lord's Supper. That's proper worship. What is the Lord's Supper? Paul says, the cup of the blessing that we bless, the cup here means the cup that you know, holds the wine, which symbolizes the blood of Christ. He says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The word participation here means being entangled, being united, being in fellowship. Paul says, when we partake in the wine, we are fellowshipping, we are entangling, we are becoming intimate with with the blood of Christ. Paul says, likewise, when you break the bread, we're partaking the bread, by through the bread, we're partaking in the body of Christ. As we take that bread during communion, we are entangling ourselves. We are in fellowship. We are, in, we are united with the body of Christ. When we do Lord's Supper together, there, there, it is, there's something Deeply, we are fellowshipping with the real with, with, with Christ. Christianity, Christian faith, is you are entangling. You're in deep fellowship. 
You are united. You are in communion with the living Christ. That's what Christianity is. This participation, this entanglement, this fellowship, this unity, this, the, 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 the entanglement with Christ is the thing that sets our hearts free from idols. Christianity is more than a set of religious dogmas. Christianity is more than religious activity. Christianity at its core is an entanglement with Christ. You are in deep communion with Christ, not only through the Lord's Supper, but daily. Is that your Christian experience? Are you living in deep entanglement, unity, in communion with Christ? What does that look like? What does this deep, intimate communion with Christ look like? Number one, one of the examples, one of the ways that you see is when you are in deep communion with Christ, you start to identify with him. Before Christ, you used to identify yourself with, in terms of, you know, your family or your sexuality or your, you know, your, your, your ethnicity. Before Christ, you used to primarily identify yourself with a certain set of characteristics. Whether that be your sexuality, whether that be your ethnicity, whether that be your cultural background, whatever it is, you used to identify yourself with a certain characteristics. But after Christ, when you're in deep community with him, you primarily identify yourself in your relationship with him. So before you are a doctor, before you are a pastor, before you are a data scientist, before anything, you primarily identify yourself as Christ, with Christ. That's what Paul means in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I, live, I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in, in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, after his conversion experience, the old him is dead. What he used to live for, what he used to identify himself, that is all gone. After his conversion, he now lives in faith, in trust, in love in the Son of God who died for him. That's how Paul primarily sees himself. All right, do you primarily see yourself that way? When you're in deep community with him, you, you start to. My hero, Becca Cook, right? The former homosexual guy, right? Someone asked him, why don't you call yourself a gay Christian? And Becca Cook says, why would I do that? Why would I identify myself? Why would, I call, why would I identify myself with my old nature that was sin? No, I'm not a gay Christian. I am a Christian because I primarily identify myself with Christ. When you are in deep communion with him, oh, you start to see yourself primarily through the, light, through the lens of Christ. When you are in deep communion with him, you are nourished by him. He nourishes you. Oh, he does. He gives you spiritual nourishment. He makes your mind sane. In my life, there were a couple of major tragedies in my life, but there's a trauma that I went through that shifted my brain. I have PTSD. I know what PTSD feels like because I had a PTSD experience, and it lasted for a decade. And when that event happened to me, 
the world crumbled. Like, everything was upside down. Really. But the way that I got through, though, that brain-shifting PTSD days is I was running, and I listened to a lot of sermons when I was running. I listened to Tim Keller's sermons. I listened to John Piper's sermons. I listened to Paul Washer's sermons. I listened, I pray. In that tumultuous period of my life that lasted for years, God nourished me with his word. When I prayed in tears, sometimes when I, when I, when I was praying, all I could do was just cry. And in, in my crying, he comes to me with his spirit and he comforts me. He nourishes me and he comforts me. And that's how I got out of those dark days. When you are in deep communion with Christ, he nourishes you. He makes your mind sane through his word. He is present with you with his spirit. That's what deep entanglement with, with, with Christ feels like. When you're in deep communion with him, your thoughts think after his thoughts. Your thoughts start to conform to his thoughts. When you are in deep communion with him, you follow him, and you know the only hope in life is with him. The more that I live, the more that the cares of the world become secondary, the more that I hope the more that I hope in his kingdom. When you are in deep fellowship with him, these things happen to you. And that is what the Christian life ought to be. The question is, are you in deep communion? Are you in deep entanglement? Are you participating in the blood and the, and the body of Christ? How does this set you free from idolatry? When you start to commune with Christ this way, when you start to identify yourself with Christ this way, the idols look so small now. They don't look real now. That's the benefit. When you are in communion with Christ, other people's opinions, what you do for a living, where your kids go to college, these things that mattered so much when you were, before you were saved, when you were communing with Christ, they become very small. Communing with Christ deflates the, vital, the, the value of the idols. The question you ask yourself is, are there things in your life that matters like a lot? Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship. I don't know. Maybe it's someone's opinions of who you are. And if they if you give it an inflated value to these things, like you can't live without it, right? You can't live without that job, you can't live without with that, with that person. You like you need that that person needs to love you or whatever. If you have an inflated value of something, it is because you're because it is because you're not communing with Christ. Communion with Christ makes you see reality for what it is. And when you see reality for what it is, your heart is set free. This sermon has to be a two-parter because I'm only half done. 
idols, idols will come and attack you. Satan will whisper idolatry in your ears. And your heart wants to listen to what Satan has to say about the, 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 the idol. It will come to you every day. But we must flee from it. Using your minds. By, by being led by the word of God. You flee from it. By moving, going away from idols. And communing with the living Christ. If you don't commune with the living Christ, if you're not in the word, your desire will naturally drift towards idolatry. And when it drifts towards idolatry, you will be dissatisfied, you will be angry, you will be anxious. You'll be too busy thinking about these things to truly be effective to God and to other people. You must flee. I must flee from idolatry. Next week's sermon, which I'm going to continue next week, so Pastor Virgin gets a week, like Pastor Virgin can preach the week after. The rest of the chapter deals with idolatry is really from the devil. That's how the devil attacks you. The devil doesn't attack you by giving you scary things. He attacks you but primarily by giving you idols. Flee the devil by fleeing to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we weren't, that we're, we're not running for you. We confess that we don't look at this world primarily as a race. We look at this world as an end goal, as, as, as the only thing that we really have. And we're not running, Lord, because we're busy chasing after, thinking after, hoping after worthless things. Many people waste their lives by chasing after worthless things. Most of humanity lives worthless lives because they chase after worthless things. And I'm afraid a lot of us, Lord, are falling in trap of that. Rather than fellowshipping with you, rather than using our minds to combat idolatry, we embrace the ideals, the, the idols of the world. We embrace the narrative of the world. We embrace the values of the world. And yet foolishly believe we can also worship you at the same time. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for letting us see the condition of the world and the condition of our hearts. Father, it is our prayer that we will flee from idolatry that visits us every day by using our brains and to fleeing to you. Quiet times, private worship is more than good religious practice. It is vital to a life who wants to, who wants to run for you. So we pray, Lord, may my dear brothers and sisters fellowship with you. 
May you nourish them. May they identify themselves with you. May they see you and your truth as a true narrative. May they be devoted to you. May they follow you, Lord. Idolatry makes us miserable, makes us anxious, makes us waste our lives. Set us free from such things by allowing us to free to you. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.